stop faking orgasms because you're not teaching your partner how to actually show up for you. You're enabling the same kind of sexual activity to continue happening that you've already just said doesn't work for you. You know, it's, it's easy to say and then more difficult to do in the moment, especially if you've reached that point where you're like, okay, I'm done now. I'd rather be doing anything but this. But I think we have to do better to articulate what is authentic in the moment. And it's okay to say to a partner, you know, I, I really love when you do XYZ and reinforce and reiterate all the good stuff that does work and really avoid shaming or being negative. Welcome back, everyone, to Diary of an Empath. So today I have a very special guest. I have been wanting to do this subject for quite a while, but I've been waiting for the right guest to bring on. So my next guest, her name is Dr. Kate Balistrieri. She is one of the leading sex therapists in the country. She's a consultant for multiple huge social media platforms, and she also runs her own podcast called the Modern Intimacy Podcast. Thank you so, so much for coming on the show. I'm just so excited. I've been wanting to have you on this show. I've been following you for a while. So I'm very humbled and thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you so much. I'm so honored to be a part of your show and, and really grateful to be here chatting with you. So tell me about how you got into this area. Um, what's your background and what got you interested in sex therapy? It's such a big question, right? Um, how do we get where we're going? And I was just speaking with another therapist the other day about how quickly our paths can change. And that was definitely the case for me. When I entered grad school, I started as a forensic psychologist and really specialized in understanding the way that psychology and the legal system intersect. So I worked for many, many years in the prison systems and treated uh, did t psychological testing and treatment with um, convicted sex offenders and then other non-sexual violent offenders. And I did that for years and really, really enjoyed that work. Um, but I hated working in the prison systems because it's kind of like being incarcerated yourself. It's hard. Those settings are really hard. And um, I decided to branch out and go into private practice and really enjoyed that work, but wanted to focus more on sexuality because I found that it was a topic a lot of people wanted to discuss, but felt really skittish to talk about. So given my background in working with offenders, there's pretty much nothing I hadn't spoken about. It seemed like a really nice parlay into doing this work. And I think when I started becoming more conscious about it, it became an even more obvious direction for me to take looking at my own relationship with sex growing up and the relationship that I had to it, which was really built on a lot of mixed messages and complicated messages from family, from culture, from religion, from society, from my peers, and from the feedback that I'd been getting in the dating world. So I, I thought it was a really curious space, this, this idea of sex, mental health, and relationships, because it seems to be one of the most important topics to people, one of the most confusing and one of the most ever-changing in people's lives. And that to me felt really exciting. It's interesting. I worked in the federal prison system. You did? And I did. I did. And so I'm when I'm hearing you and I'm like, oh my God, that was me because I worked in the federal prison system and it's like being incarcerated. It is. And when you are someone who's not only a healer, but also an empath, it's like I was absorbing all this negative energy and I, I felt like I wasn't making a big enough impact. And although it taught me a lot of lessons and not everybody's bad, it wasn't something that I found myself. I'm like, I can't work in this, this population. It's not for me. It's very difficult. It really is. So I resonate with that. 
Yeah, I so appreciate you saying that. The inmates who I worked with, I found so much joy, actually, in, in doing the work with them. And I found that many of them were hungry for healing, which was great. But what I found frustrating about it was the lack of resources and the lack of systemic support for this work. A hundred percent. I experienced the same thing. And when you mentioned, you know, your past and some of the experiences that you had maybe with your culture and dating and some of the things you were exposed to, very familiar for me too, because I come from a Brazilian and a Middle Eastern background. And so, you know, there were things culturally that were appropriate and not appropriate where I grew up, the things I was exposed to. I had a lot of personal trauma. And a lot of the clients that I deal with, you know, they have a lot of trauma when it comes to sex and what their reality is of sex. And one of the questions that I get asked a lot is how do you get back into sex after trauma? Or if you've had a traumatic event, both, you know, maybe it's mental or physical abuse, how does someone get back into sex and just be a normal woman and be able to enjoy themselves if they've had trauma? That's such an important question and one that I get asked a lot too, because there's just not a lot of discourse about even how to heal from trauma, let alone how to be sexual after trauma. If it's okay to talk about a video that I made on my YouTube channel, there is a free resource there for people. Um, It's an hour and a half webinar that I did that talks about developing hot and healthy intimacy after sexual trauma. And I bring it up, one, because it's a free resource that people can go check on my channel. But also what I talk about in there is the necessity in really understanding the impact of trauma whether it's sexual trauma or other kinds of trauma, on all the different domains of our lives. Because all of the different domains of our lives influence the sexual element of who we are. Because we're not these compartmentalized, fragmented humans. We are integrated beings. So when we have a traumatic event, it shapes our identity. It shapes the way we relate to people. It shapes our ability to achieve in the world sometimes. It shapes all different kinds of aspects of who we are, and that in turn becomes a feedback loop for how we approach sex or relationships or any of the other domains in our life. So I think it's really key to get curious about impact and then to think about what your goals and values are and where you might need some scaffolding or want help to build new resources have more community, have safer spaces for more robust conversations, things like that to help you get to that space. And learning how to talk about the trauma on your own terms is really, really important because when we can shift from that space of something happened to us to now I'm in control of how I communicate it, how I talk about it, how I address it, that shift in and of itself can really send a message to the body that it's okay to show up again in this arena. It's almost like rewiring the nervous system a little bit too is what I'm hearing. You know, it's like that sense of control because if you go through a trauma, especially if you're disassociating, it's a lack of control. So if someone is disassociating during sexual intercourse, is there any type of exercises or anything they can do in the moment to try to maybe bring them back? Sometimes people like to kind of reconnect with themselves by going inward, and sometimes people like to connect by focusing on something outside of themselves. For example, you can start to count the number of tiles on the ceiling or how many knobs on your dresser, you know, anything like that to just get yourself grounded in something. Um, You can ask your partner to stop and breathe together and make eye contact and recalibrate your bodies in a way that feels okay until you are ready for sex again, uh, whether in that situation or uh, the next time you're sexual. 
Um, but I think it, you know, it's really important to kind of slow down a little bit if you're someone who dissociates and think about some of the catalysts for dissociation so that you can plan for it in advance and work with your partner to try to avoid those things and really kind of create a plan together so that it's a shared experience of staying connected if that feels available. And it sounds like communication is really important too. So what about the opposite? If somebody's experiencing maybe hypersexuality, because I know for me, you know, when I was a teenager, I had a lot of sexual trauma. I had a lot of trauma in general, and I was more hypersexual. So I was sexually active at a very, very young age. I lost my virginity at 13. I was so young looking back at it because now I have a 13 year old and it's crazy because I'm like, I can never picture that. But where I grew up and how I grew up, it was the norm. And I was very hyper sexually active. And now that I'm older and now that I'm a clinician, I can loop everything. I see the links. I see how the domino effect affected me as a teenager. And so for someone who maybe is now hypersexually active or maybe was when they were a teenager. How is that affected by trauma and why? Great question. So what I really hear you saying or asking is how does the trauma impact our ability to control our sexual impulses or behavior? And I think hearkening back to the nervous system is really important because for some people, when they experience a trauma, their nervous system becomes hyper aroused, right? And with that comes more activity, more impulse control difficulties, more anxiety, more irritability, more aggression, more obsession. It's an increase in that upregulation, right? So sex is one way that that can show up. Because in our bodies, when, when everything gets amplified and agitated or elevated, so does our desire for sex for many people. But for others, trauma may actually activate a parasympathetic nervous response, which is downregulating. So it's vitality limiting. So for those folks, they may lose desire, not have any libido, or dissociate more. So I think one thing to remember is that no matter how you react to a trauma, that's your body's way of trying to keep you safe. So it's super important not to judge it. And one person's hypersexual is another person's Monday. And so I think we have to really remember that there are lots of ways to have a really healthy sex life. And there's no limit to how much sex that includes. So if you're okay with whatever your sex drive looks like, even if somebody else might say, wow, that's a lot of sex. If it's not broken, it's not broken, right? And you get to decide how much is enough for you and how much is not enough and where you want to be. So if someone's struggling with compulsivity or they're struggling with regulating that desire and maybe it's causing some unwanted consequences in their lives, then it might be time to get curious with a sex therapist. But otherwise, I would say it's really kind of up to each person to figure out what's an okay amount for them and to really be cautious not to shame whatever might be a protective strategy or just a natural born level of interest in sex. I love that. I really do because we live in a society and we're getting better, but women have often been stigmatized for sex, you know, especially in, in history. And it's like we we see this time and time again where men can be sexual. They're they're rewarded for being sexual. Like, oh, I've I banged her and I did this and I did that. But as a woman, you know, if you say that, well, you know, back in the day, you're like, oh, you were a hoe or you were this or whatever, you know, they would say. And so we were stigmatized for so long. So I love that you say, you know, don't judge yourself, you know, be forgiving of yourself. If it works for you, that's okay. There's no right or wrong answer. It's very subjective. 
Now, what about trauma bonds? We hear this word floating around TikTok and, and Instagram. And for those that don't know what trauma bonds are, what's your take on that? So when I think about trauma bonds, I think about a couple of different dynamics that can create them. But really a trauma bond is two people who bond out of current or historical imprints for trauma. So that can look like, say, two folks who one person was incredibly neglected, one person was abused, or whatever their original stories were, and they haven't really processed a lot of that healing on their own. So what ends up happening is they end up picking partners and they get stuck in the same kind of cycle where some of those earlier trauma dynamics might get replayed. They might pick a partner who is abusive toward them, or they might pick a partner who is neglectful, not consciously. I'm not engaging in any victim blaming, but unconsciously, we tend to pick what's familiar. So until we've really processed, metabolized, assimilated the trauma that's happened to us, we have a much higher likelihood of unconsciously gravitating toward what we know. And that's true whether you had a traumatic or dysfunctional upbringing or a really healthy or functional upbringing. We gravitate toward what we know. So a trauma bond can be brought about because it is the result of that unconscious neurobiological imprinting, but it can also be two people going through something really traumatic together, and then they really solidify a connection because of the closeness that came in surviving that. But what ends up happening is they tend to not evolve beyond that traumatic experience. So they get stuck in this sort of loop of just existing in that traumatic or dysfunctional space and repeating that connection to regenerate the spark that maybe gets lost as they start to heal. I feel like that often exists with the narcissist and the empath, or at least with narcissistic relationships. I've had a few in my past, and I feel like sex was what bonded me with that person. It was the only time I felt intimacy with that relationship. So I would often resort to sex with that person because it was the only time I felt that intimacy, that I wasn't being gaslit or I wasn't being manipulated. So I feel like that trauma bond really exists with the narcissist and the empath. And I don't know about your experiences, you know, with your clients with that, but do you find that people who are extra sensitive tend to maybe attract those types of relationships or resort to sex to get that intimacy? I would actually argue that the narcissist is, or somebody with a lot of narcissistic traits is also very sensitive, but they're sensitive in different ways. And what I'm hearing and what I hear you describing is the way that people, based on their attachment styles, tend to use sex as a motivating strategy for connection. So somebody who's more narcissistic may evidence more of a dismissive avoidant or a fearful avoidant attachment style, they're a little bit more likely to have a different relationship with sex than somebody who has more of a preoccupied attachment style. Many empaths will relate to a preoccupied attachment style because if you think about the traits that develop for empaths, it's really about having a highly, highly attuned level of awareness of what's going on for someone else, which is really rooted in tracking. And when we grow up tracking the behaviors of unsafe people around us, we become exquisite empaths in our adulthood. So what is that about? It's about anxiety. 
I don't feel safe. I don't feel seen. I don't feel connected. Let me track and watch and see what they're doing to find out when is a good time for me to connect or when they might be available for some safe, secure functioning. And of course, it's all unconscious. Later in adulthood, that might look like using sex as a way to, again, unconsciously create that safety. Plus, neurochemically, oxytocin, vasopressin can be elicited, which are those bonding chemicals. For just that split second, everything feels bonded, safe, connected, and warm and fuzzy in that relationship. Absolutely. We're very hyper aware. And I love that you mentioned the oxytocin because when we're in the womb and you know we're, we're in our mother's wombs, those are the neurotransmitters that are being released. So we on a subconscious level are feeling those things and it's the same things that are released during sex. And so of course we feel safe. That's when that intimacy bond is there. So I love that you said that. I want to talk about something that's a little bit stigmatized, porn and masturbation. I feel like this is a topic that I always, always feel like people question and they want to know more of, but maybe they don't know how to ask these questions or they don't know how to talk to their partner about it. Let's talk about porn. Is that a normal part of sexuality? And when is porn considered a problem? First, I want to say that the word normal when we're talking about sex or anything is a really dicey word because it doesn't hold space for what is the breadth of diversity that exists in what can be healthy and okay for people. So what I will say is that visual erotica, written erotica, these things have been around since the dawn of time, right? And they're not going anywhere. And the reason for that is because they help generate and stimulate arousal and desire. And when we think about sex, I think it's important to remember that sex is really an adult form of play. And when we look at it from that perspective, porn can be a really great medium to engage in fantasy. It can be a really great medium to get creative, to access different stimulation, and access different parts of ourselves that we don't get to visit or see or express in our day-to-day lives very often, or maybe don't even want to. So visual erotica, I think, can play a really, really healthy role in people's sex lives. But just like alcohol, your relationship with porn will dictate whether or not it's healthy for you. I would be so foolhearted to say, as a whole, alcohol is a bad thing, because it's not. It can be socially connecting. It can be a little bit disinhibiting. It can be just flat out fun. You can order different kinds of martinis and express creativity that way, right? You can express parts of your personality and whether you order an old fashioned or an espresso martini or a shot of tequila, like there's a lot that we do with this medium. And it's only a problem when somebody has a difficult time regulating their relationship with it, or when it starts causing other consequences in their lives. And I would say porn is the same way. So what I think is a problem with porn is the fact that people don't know how to think critically about what they're watching. And there's a lot of porn that's created without an ethical foundation. And so I think we're seeing a lot of unregulated porn that's created in a very male-centric way that doesn't fully express accurate or robust knowledge about sexuality, genitals, anatomy, the arc of arousal. So we're seeing the feedback loop of people who are watching mainstream porn that's not ethically created take root in what people's ideas of sex ought to be. 
coupled with the fact that there's really terrible sex education in our country and people are going to porn for that more and more, I think this is why it's a problem sometimes in relationships. But I'm not going to say that porn is the problem per se. It's really the way that we're creating it and the way that we are consuming it and the way that we're not thinking about it critically and supporting our sexual health with other appropriate resources. I agree with all of your statements because for me, I feel like I mean I've watched porn. I think that most women now do. It's we have access to it. I mean, you just Google and you can find anything <laughs> nowadays. But um, I, I think that porn can be healthy. I think that porn can help you get outside of your comfort zone. But I also feel like there's a side of porn that is not ethical. That's not realistic. And I think that for some, I don't want to categorize women or men, but I feel like there are some people who have an unrealistic view of what sex is. And I also think that porn has maybe given more issues with body image or sexuality. Oh, like I see these women having orgasms, 10 of them in one porn. How come I can't orgasm? I don't know what that's like. So maybe for women who are listening right now and can't achieve an orgasm, what are some tips that you would give as a sex therapist for them to maybe start exploring those avenues or maybe things that they can do to achieve those orgasms? Because I hear that all the time. I watch porn and they're, you know, having 10 orgasms and I've never had one. (laughs) What do I do? Well, the first thing that you do is remember that those are paid actors or unpaid actors. Um, And it's really not, not realistic what we're seeing in most of mainstream porn. The body requires more stimulation than what's seen, more lubrication than what's seen. Things are staged, things are edited, things are airbrushed. There's CGI alterations to what's being seen. So you've got to think about porn as if it's like a sci-fi movie. It's just a fantasy. That's not the place to go for any sort of comparison or any sort of you know real education. But there are places, there are some ethical porn producers that are really changing that narrative. In fact, in the New York Times recently, there was a woman, there is a woman named Erica Lust, who is an ethical porn producer. And she was just featured in the New York Times talking about the necessity to change these kinds of videos so that they are more accurate. They do represent how to properly arouse a body, whether it has a penis or a vulva, and really, you know, helping people learn while they're getting titillated and stimulated. And it's a more holistic representation of sex as opposed to a lot of what we see in free porn, which is genital focused, point of view focused, and doesn't really show the whole gestalt. Absolutely. I noticed, especially as porn has evolved, now don't get me wrong, it's not like I've been watching porn for 15 years, but a lot of porn is to me very unrealistic. You know, you see the guy going in and the the woman <laughs> having 10 orgasms. And to me, you know, I know sex is subjective, but for me, that is not pleasurable at all. I, I cannot get stimulated off of just like hardcore sex. So I feel like it's very unrealistic. So another thing that I've heard from just women that I've talked to and clients, friends, that they never understood how to stimulate themselves. They were never taught. They would watch porn and the way that they would see things didn't work for them. They weren't able to do that because maybe their culture was against touching themselves or they felt dirty or had a negative body image. So for someone who's really struggling with maybe how they look or their cultural beliefs on that, what would your advice be in order to have a more healthier relationship with their body? 
Well, I'm a big fan of finding secular and really robust research and information so that people can learn what it is they want to learn scientifically, and then try to make sense of whether or not there's any dissonance between their cultural or religious messages, and then decide for themselves what they'd like to incorporate into their sex lives. But there's a really great resource for people with vulvas and vaginas called omgyes.com. And this website is doing amazing things. They are really robust in their research. And right now they've got three seasons of information that they've released. And it's all about learning about the anatomy and learning how to pleasure the anatomy, creating empowered language for the different movements and techniques that they've established are really effective for pleasure. And that is a, a really amazing resource that, again, is, is secular, it's culturally kind of neutral, and really just gives people what they need to know about anatomy so that they can, again, decide what works for them and what doesn't. I think that's a great resource. I never had anything like that growing up at all. I kind of just had to figure it out. But luckily, I was always very in tune with my body. I was surprised to hear and have these conversations with women that a lot of women have never achieved orgasm during sex. I was mind blown. I had no idea. I thought everybody was like me and just had an orgasm or knew what to do to themselves in order to have one. I was mind blown at the statistics of women who have never achieved an orgasm. I just... I didn't know. I had no idea. Yeah. And there are so many variables that come into play with that. You know, sometimes it's a lack of skill for one of both partners, a lack of knowledge about how to effectively please a partner or tell a partner what you like. Sometimes it's about feeling unsafe in the more covert ways, even if overtly you feel like, oh, this is a partner that works for me. I, I, I can feel okay here. If we don't feel safe in our bodies, if we don't feel like we like our bodies, or if we feel exhausted from the day, or if there's been an inequity and in emotional labor in the relationship, you know, there's lots of variables that come into play when we're talking about how to fully surrender into the pleasure of pleasure. And um, that can make it really hard for women to have, uh, have an orgasm or get themselves there. Absolutely. And I love that resource. So for those that are dating, I'm single, I'm in the dating field. I've been in situations where I've had sex really quick. I've also been in situations where I'm like, okay, I'm going to wait. They end up being an asshole anyway. <laughs> so it's like, what do you, how do you navigate the dating world? I know there's no rules to this, but there are some people listening that have read the self-help books and said, okay, nope, I have to wait 90 days. I have to wait this long or no, I'm going to have sex on the first date. What do you say to dating and sex? How long should you wait? I don't think there's one prescriptive rule or way to be. I think you know what, what can be really helpful when you're dating is to think about what are your goals and what will help you get there, right? So if you're somebody who has had a lot of experiences with people you know, having sex and then not calling the next day. What do you want to know about people moving forward that might help you assess if there's somebody who's going to stick around more? You know, can you be more conscious about how you are getting answers to the questions that will help you make a decision about who you want to spend time with? And it's not a given. Like you said, sometimes you can wait and you get played and it really, really hurts. And it can be so, it can feel so hopeless sometimes. But if that's happening over and over again, one, I think it's important to remember that it's not about you because there's a lot of that game playing that goes around in the world. When we have women who are enlisted as the gatekeepers of worth and men who are enlisted as you know people who get to be sexual, but when we commodify sex as a measure of worth and then we make women responsible for it and then we tell men 
you can only have sex with women. I'm talking specifically about straight relationships, obviously. What you set up is this really gnarly cat and mouse game of supply and demand, where men are told in order to be masculine, you need to go out and have a lot of sex. So sometimes they want to be sexual for pleasure, but a lot of the time it's to boost a sense of their own masculinity and self-esteem. And it's not a really conscious experience. And when you've got people who are not conscious about what they want going out and kind of being in the world, you know, it can leave a lot of unintended hurts. I love that. And I think for me, my issue, and I'm very open on my podcast with my listeners, I think that I always associated sex with intimacy. Like for me, I can't just have sex to have sex. And there are people out there that can do that. I'm not one of them. I cannot separate intimacy from just a sexual encounter. So I noticed every time I would date somebody, and of course, the attractions there, of course, I'm human. But when sex would happen, that's when I would lose the control emotionally. I have more of an anxious attachment style. That's when I would start to ruminate and start to think. And, you know, people always want to show us the best version of themselves. And I just so happen to meet a lot of assholes, you know, so... (laughs) I I would always look at it. I'm like, damn, you know, I shouldn't have done that. But it wasn't because I was I didn't feel devalued for having sex. But it was more so that I felt like I lost the control of my emotions with the intimacy because it was more intimate for me, but it was more of just a physical sexual encounter for them. And it was like a betrayal. So I think for those that like have that connection, like if you can't separate the intimacy, then maybe it's better to wait. Yeah, I mean, it it absolutely could be better to wait if you're somebody who does really quickly get emotionally and sexually kind of uh, fused together with someone. And that's a great time to practice asking those questions of a partner and really observing how they talk about relationships how they put an effort to get to know you, how they respond to your efforts to get to know them on a deeper level, it will tell you a lot about whether or not they're in it for the long haul or whether or not this is you know, a, a strategy. That said, there are some really skilled liars out there, so you can't anticipate everything and don't beat yourself up if you miss something. Yes, thank you for that because I've been there and I know many people listening have. So what about couples who are already in a monogamous relationship? Maybe they're married, you know, maybe they've been together for a year, two, three years, maybe 20 years. For couples that want to spice things up in the bedroom and they've been together a long time, how can one partner communicate that with their partner? Maybe they want to try a new toy. Maybe they want to bring a third person into the bedroom. Maybe they want to try lifestyle. How do they communicate or what would be the best option to try to communicate to that, to their partner? Yeah, I think the starting point really depends on how fluently and frequently couples talk about sex and how open they are about their sexual desires and and their uh, curiosities and, and their sex life together. For a lot of couples, when their sex life starts to peter out a little bit, they stop talking about it and then it can feel a little bit more awkward or like there's a lot more weighing on the outcome of a conversation. So it can sometimes be a good idea to download um, a yes, no, maybe list from the, the internet. There's one on my website. There are a bunch of other really good ones too. That will help you kind of look at different sexual activities that you can do. And you can each fill one out and be like, yes, this sounds fun or no, that's totally off limits for me or maybe in the right circumstances, this could be fun or interesting. And you can use that as a starting ground to think about like, 
where are we right now in our sexual playground together? What's available to us? What do we know is really fun for us? Where might we want to be more expansive together? How do we build on the good thing that we already have? I think it's super important to talk about that desire to open, and I don't mean necessarily open a relationship, but open your curiosities together from a place of non-judgment and non-shaming. And if you or your partner has a fantasy that feels really different than what you're accustomed to hearing yourself or your partner talk about, really be careful not to judge the fantasy or judge the interest because you know some people have some really unique ideas and it can be really healthy, right? Because remember, sex is play. And when we think about what different fantasies allow us to play and how they allow us to be expressive, it can really help to make something that feels really out of left field feel like it can be available and accessible to you. I like that yes, no idea because it gives the person autonomy. It gives that person kind of like that control of like, all right, I'm by myself. Let me be honest. I can be honest with myself and say what I am comfortable with, what I'm not, what I can maybe you know look into, and then we can compare and go from there. I think that's a really great way of having a starting point. And so if a couple is together, and let's say they've been together a while and there's infidelity in the relationship, infidelity is something that comes up time and time again with a lot of couples, especially, you know, as the day and age that we're in and social media, we're kind of like this swipe left, swipe right society, right? So it seems like infidelity is on the rise. If there's a couple who is trying to work it out, maybe they're listening right now, what is a way to overcome the infidelity and have sex with that person again, be physical with that person? Because I can imagine it's got to be really difficult to overcome that and, and maintain that physical connection. It really can be. I mean, sexual betrayal and infidelity can be one of the most challenging obstacles for a couple. And when they're trying to work through it, especially if there have been multiple infidelity moments, it's really hard to feel like you're going to make traction. So what can be really helpful is for whomever was the person who hurt the other partner to really be mindful about staying accountable for that hurt and not trying to sweep the conversation or the effect under the rug, that can be so damaging and really limits the betrayed partner's ability to feel like their partner's going to be there for them through this pain and this hurt. And it's tough because you know a lot of the people that I work with feel a tremendous amount of guilt and shame for stepping outside of the agreements in their relationship, and they just want it to go away, and they don't want to see their partner's pain because it reminds them of something that they did that hurt their partner. And nobody likes to think that they're capable of that or responsible for that, which is why there's so much deception. You know, I think really quickly getting into couples therapy can be a huge help for people to learn how to be present for each other in the difficult moments. And when couples do that, they can develop a strengthened bond in an area that once felt very fractured in their relationship. But it takes time. And when the betrayed partner is ready, if they get to this point to be more curious about what the affair meant for their other partner, I think that can really shed light on how they change the dynamic between the two of them so that they don't go back to whatever the same dynamic may have been. Again, not blaming a betrayed partner for being betrayed. And, you know, we have to look at kind of the way we both show up in a relationship to protect it from future hurts. 
I agree. I feel like I've been in a situation, I've been the person on the other side where I've been cheated on. And it's really hard to, you know, say, okay, well, I I can't just get over it. But in a sense, I had to come to the conclusion, like, okay, if I cannot move past this infidelity, I'm not moving anywhere in my marriage. And I had to come to the conclusion for multiple reasons that it was not healthy or conducive for me to continue. I think had I have stayed in that situation, I would not have been able to continue a physical relationship. And I found myself getting more and more distant. But I do agree with you. I think that if two people come together, you have to get to the point with work to say like, okay, I'm not going to continuously bring this up every argument because we're just going to go in a revolving circle. But it takes work on both ends. And couples therapy, let me tell you, that is is hard. It can be. That's one thing. I've never taken couples as as clients because it's not my strength. (laughs) But it's, it's definitely really difficult. So speaking of communication, if there's a couple who maybe there's one person who doesn't feel that their partner is doing the things that pleases them in bed, what is a way that they can bring this up to their partner without hurting their ego, without hurting their feelings, but communicating this in a healthy way? Because this is a question I get repeatedly that my partner is not doing what I like, but I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want to fake an orgasm, but I feel like I'm doing more of that. Well, if there's one thing that listeners take away from this episode, I hope it's this, stop faking orgasms. Yes. (laughs) Just stop. Yes. (laughs) No matter what, just stop. Um, Unless there's a safety issue, of course, but really stop faking orgasms because you're not teaching your partner how to actually show up for you. You're enabling the same kind of sexual activity to continue happening that you've already just said doesn't work for you. You know, it's it's easy to say and then more difficult to do in the moment, especially if you've reached that point where you're like, okay, I'm done now. I'd rather be doing anything but this. But I think we have to do better to articulate what is authentic in the moment. And it's okay to say to a partner, you know, I, I really love when you do X, Y, Z and reinforce and reiterate all the good stuff that does work and really avoid shaming or being negative or hurtful in the way that you deliver feedback around maybe what doesn't work for you. And one thing that can be really, really helpful for couples is to start doing um, a debrief after every sexual experience. So they get used to giving each other feedback about what was really great or maybe what could be different or what didn't really hit the mark and doing it with a shared vision of curiosity and a shared vision of growth for the next sexual experience. So you can keep building on that. And when we normalize feedback with each other, it creates a lot more tolerance for, you know, hearing things like, yeah, you know, when you did that thing, I I know what you were going for. And I so appreciate the energy there. But I don't really think that's going to work for me. But we could try XYZ, XYZ and play with it this way and maybe see if there can be something different next time. You know, it it creates a collaborative spirit of teamwork when it comes to co-creating great sex. I am with you. I feel like <laughs> just stop faking the orgasms because we're 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 teaching them bad behavior. <laughs> yeah. But no, I think communication is so you're so spot on. Communication's huge and I feel like a lot of people are receptive to communication, but maybe they just don't know how to communicate or bring up the conversation because it's a stigma. It's uncomfortable or they've never had those conversations before. But maybe with just a little guidance, you know, hey, I, I love how you worded it. Hey, you know, you tried that thing. Um, it's not my thing, but maybe we can try this. Like anal is not my thing. <laughs> I'm not an anal person. Done it. Been there. 
mm-hmm. does not feel good. Mm-hmm. I've had, you know, when a guy has tried it before, I'm like, yep, nope, nope, we're not doing that. <laughs> but we can try other things. Yeah. So yeah. I, I love that. And I think maybe even creating a space of this is not a, a judgmental zone. That's right. Yeah. It's a no judgment zone. And I, and one thing that's so important to remember is that you can only control what you say and how you say it. And this might sound a little insensitive, but you're not responsible for managing your partner's feelings. You are responsible for sharing yours. And I think that is so, so, so important in relationships in general. Now, obviously, I'm not saying that you should run around being a jerk on purpose. And if you're too emotionally charged to have a graceful conversation with your partner or a tactful conversation, then maybe it's on you to hold off until you can find the words to be kind. But otherwise, you know, if you are delivering the message in the way that you believe to be integrity bound, graceful, tactful, your partner's feelings might get hurt. But I trust that they're a grown ass human being who can handle having some hurt feelings and the two of you can work together to find a new way through. And if they can't, if they crumble from that, well, that's maybe a sign of something bigger going on than than your sex position not being your favorite. Exactly. Oh, I love how you word that. So I have a 13-year-old daughter, like I mentioned, and she's getting to the age of sexual exploration. She's really trying to, you know, experience her sexuality. And, you know, she knows that I'm very open on my show and she's okay with that. But being a mother of a teenage daughter, I have tried to explore how do I talk about sex? Personally, I started talking about sex with my daughter when she was around 11 because of my own upbringing, because of how sex was introduced to me at such a young age. And so for me as a parent, I wanted to be the one to have have that conversation with her and not figure it out through Google or through one of her friends. But for those that are listening that might have a son or a daughter who is kind of coming up to that age, what is the best way for a parent to approach that conversation with their child? One of the things that I think parents can do that will really set them and their kids up for success is get overeducated about sex and really learn everything that you never had a chance to learn when you were growing up and to really challenge everything you did learn about (laughs) sex when you were growing up. So that sounds like a big ordeal, but the more you can front load understanding things like consent and boundaries and what kids are growing up with and what they're exposed to today, because it's very, very different than when you and I were growing up and, you know, parents who are older than you and I, even more different. So Peggy Orenstein is an author who's written two really amazing books that I recommend for parents all the time. One is called Girls and Sex and one is called Boys and Sex. And it really helps to educate parents on the landscape that kids live in and how it influences their earliest exposure to sex and their earliest you know, thinkings about sex. So that is a great place to start if your kids are approaching that preteen area. But it's also really essential to note that kids are being exposed to pornography earlier and earlier with the average age of exposure. I think I just read it was around age nine. So kids are seeing the sexual material long before they really have the cognitive sophistication to understand what they're seeing and what it all means. And of course, it's exciting or weird or you know something that they didn't expect. So they might be more curious about it and seek it out. So 
starting when kids are even younger, teaching them age-appropriate ideas around consent, around labeling their body with appropriate names for their genitals and their body parts, really kind of taking the shame out of uh, knowing what feels good in their body and also knowing what doesn't and having the permissions to give boundaries around that. With my daughter, and you know, I, some may not agree, um, we talked about sex, I want to say, when she was about 10. And we also have had a conversation about masturbation. I think it's really important to not exclude that because a lot of people are very uncomfortable. Well, I don't want to, I don't want my my kid to think it's okay. And in my opinion, it's not about teaching them that it's okay. It, it's it's creating a healthy environment for something that they're probably already going to do anyway because it's a natural part of anatomy and it's a natural part of being human. That's right. And I want her to understand that it's not shameful to feel those things. It's not shameful to explore your body. So I found that books were very helpful and it actually created a safe space for her because my daughter identifies as, as you know, being LGBTQ and she came out to me very, very early and she's always been open and honest with me. And I truly believe it's because we had these conversations very young. For me, again, it's very subjective. As parents, you have to make the choice on when is going to be best for your kid. But I know she's got access to her phone and I know the stuff that's on there. I went on YouTube and I saw something she Googled. I went on YouTube and and put in what she put in and I was astounded at the videos that I found on YouTube. But I was like, oh, okay. So we're we're seeing pornography type of stuff on YouTube that is now allowed. So your kids have access. They, they're they seeing it. That's right. I think taking this sort of head in the sand approach of if we don't talk about it, we won't facilitate it is really dangerous. And I so appreciate that parents are trying their best and they don't always have all the answers. I know based on the research that doing that actually creates and fosters the worst possible outcome because it creates shame. It creates a lack of critical thinking about sex, which then actually creates a higher life likelihood of making decisions about sex that they might regret later. So we want children to be educated about how to have safer sex. We want children to be educated on masturbation because masturbation is a great alternative to partnered sex. And if you're afraid that your child might have partnered sex before you're ready for them to do that, one, you can't control that. They're going to do what they want to do and you won't know about it if you don't create that safe space for them. But two, if you make it okay for them to masturbate and help them, again, think critically about how and when and how to do it safely and all of the things, then you're teaching them how to be responsible sex partners to themselves and to other people growing up. And I think that's what a lot of parents really want for their kids at some point, especially when they become adults. They want them to be responsible and to align with the values that are important to that family. Doing that requires education. Prohibiting them from getting that education is actually a lot more likely to lead them right down the path that you don't want them to go on because they won't know any better or they'll do it just out of spite and opposition. That's beautiful. I love that. And I'm so happy that there's people like you that exist to give this type of education and create a social media platform where maybe parents or individuals can go to when they need help or they need to educate themselves or where they they themselves did not have this education. So where can 
my followers and my people listening that are like, I want to know who this woman is. I want to follow her. Where <laughs> can they follow you? What's your website? And what are some things that you're doing within your career right now? Oh, thank you so much for that. Um, so my website is modernintimacy.com. And on Instagram and TikTok, you can find me at Dr. Kate Balistrary. Right now, you know, my team and I are working on a lot of different things. I've got such an amazing team of clinicians who um, work with people all over the country. We have presence in New York, Florida, Colorado, Illinois, and California. We write a lot of blogs. There's a ton of free information on our website about sex, relationships, mental health, what's going on in the world as it relates to those things. Please feel free to come and check that out. And I am actually hosting um, a workshop on January 29th called Humanize My Holes, which is an opportunity for women to think a little bit more critically about their own sexuality and develop a plan for a healthy sex life that's meaningful for them. I'm really excited about that. I love that. Okay. So, and what we're going to do is I'm going to link everything so everyone listening can follow you. Cause I also have a lot of female veterans that listen to my podcast and I know that they're dealing with some trauma and they've had a lot, a lot of these questions came from my listeners. Okay. So, you know, I, I really want them to have a safe space to maybe follow you and, and follow up with some, some work that they maybe want to reach out to you about. So thank you so much. And I'm so humbled to have you on this show. This was amazing. I've been wanting to do this episode for such a long time and it's, it's been great. So thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right. And everyone, if you like this episode, please rate and subscribe. Again, I will link where you can find her on her website, on her Instagram, on TikTok. And if you like everything, please share. If there's anyone that you think that will resonate from this episode, send them the episode. And until next time, see you on the next episode of Diary of an Empath.